Podcasting from downtown Toronto, Canada, it's The Medicine Club, a new podcast about medicine, medical innovation, and medical culture. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Samir Grover. I'm Dr. Kashif Perzada. I'm an emergency physician practicing in Toronto. And I'm a gastroenterologist based out of St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. And uh, we've got a special guest today uh, in the studio. We've got uh, Dr. Jennifer Kwan. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks for having me, uh, Samir and Kashif. So Dr. Kwan is a community family physician who's going to be working in one of the pandemic response units. And she has a unique perspective, um, having been a regular excellent source of data in this outbreak, even before they were released by the Ministry of Health here. Uh, she's been releasing the figures um, and charts and graphs and data that wasn't really accessible anywhere else. And um, she recently authored an excellent Medium post on, um, on masking and, you know, the steps that we'll take to, to control this pandemic. So thank you, uh, Jennifer, for joining us. So I wanted to start off um, by asking you about your article on Medium. So outline to us, like, what were the different steps? You had, I think, three unique steps that um, you thought would be the best way for the public to control the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So my article is titled, uh, How to Spell Pandemic Without Panic. Um, I thought of this initially, but then I couldn't figure out what DEM could stand for. And eventually it came to me that it would be distancing, easy testing, and masking. Kind of uh, three very concrete and straightforward ways for the public to contribute to our efforts in uh, returning back to normal. So, and I think these uh, encapsulate a lot of what public health has been saying, except for well, actually, only the distancing part. <laughs> Easy testing isn't there, and the masks just uh, started just a few days ago. Yeah, I think I think we're gonna get there soon, especially with the masking. I'm really glad to hear that the tide of public opinion and um, the official guidance has changed within the last week. It's interesting that it took you know public pressure to do it, and not you know the example of maybe it was the example of more successful countries in the Far East. I guess, what do you think, you know, think it was that combined that pushed um, public health to change their minds on it? Um, I think uh, we did learn a lot from uh, certain Asian countries such as South Korea, Hong Kong, that have been very successful with masking. I think masking is also part of the culture, but there has also been other countries like uh, Czech Republic that has been really successful with masking. Um, so after seeing um, these great examples, uh, I think the public also has opened their eyes to how masking can be an effective strategy uh, on top of distancing to help uh, control the outbreak. Now, with uh, what do you make of easy testing? Like how widespread does testing have to be to really make a difference, do you think? I think testing, there's going to be two major types of testing. So one is going to be the uh, point of care uh, rapid testing for diagnostic purposes um, to see if someone has had it or not. And the second type of testing that will be important is the serological testing for immunity. Um, I think uh, the combination of these two will be both important. And I think both will have to be very, very readily available, uh, fast uh, results, you know, within uh, hopefully 15 minutes would be great. Um, and also, like, if people need to do it, perhaps, like, multiple times a week. Yeah, such as, like, before going to events, uh, before traveling, before going to work if they're high risk. 
do you see any um, jurisdictions that have really pulled this off really well? Um, I think in Korea, they might be doing that. I know they have very innovative strategies with the drive-through testing and those uh, testing booths where people put their hands in the gloves. Um, so it really minimizes exposure. So I don't personally know how widespread that has been yet, but they kind of seem very innovative in making it more accessible to the public. I guess uh, serologic testing specifically will be sort of the key to getting normalcy back in society, trying to figure out mm -hmm. who the people are that uh, have been exposed and who can then sort of get back to usual activities. It would be really interesting to know how long the immunity will persist for. Let's hope long enough for the vaccine, I guess. Now, the other thing that we really admired was, again, the data output. Like, you've been putting out figures and um, facts, especially for um icu utilization in um in ontario like um how first of all how did you get started with this like how did you get access to all this before even it was publicly available and like what made you want to do this um well so i joined twitter about a month ago actually uh, my dad suggested it because he's really into twitter i've never been on it but i really wanted to put data out there in a way that i wanted to see it because I was tracking it myself based on the daily cases on the Ontario government website. But every day when it refreshes, the old information is gone. Um, and it's, there's no easy way to see how many new cases um, have been added, how many deaths there may be. Like there wasn't any easy way to compare. And you see a lot of other countries, uh, for example, early on in, when you see China, you see the trends going up, right? I couldn't really anything like that for Ontario or Canada and I wanted to know the information so I was making these graphs for personal use and for my friends and family and then my dad suggested maybe if I joined Twitter that would be a useful tool to kind of connect with people with similar interest in uh, disseminating this information so that's how I got started about a month ago. And then since then, I started doing different versions in terms of testing, in terms of recently the hospitals and ICU uh, emissions. You've really become the premier source of information in Ontario on Twitter. You know, they say that one of the, uh, uh, the putative benefits of a single payer healthcare and administrative system is open data. And that's really been missing uh, until you filled that void with, with your daily graphs on Twitter. Yeah, I really wasn't expecting. I'm just really grateful that, um, you know, I'm able to contribute in some way and um, make the data accessible for the public. And yeah, I've heard a lot of uh, physicians are also looking at the graphs. And yeah, I'm really uh, just grateful that everyone's following along. And I think it's something that maybe the public doesn't realize is that, you know, Twitter might be a cesspool if it's for politics, but for <laughs> medicine and science, it's been amazing, like discussing so many discussions about the various strange theories about this virus, you know, hemoglobinopathies, thrombosis, all, you know, statistics. Um, all of these discussions are happening in real time with colleagues across the world on Twitter. And, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, we didn't see in China because they don't really have that open culture of collaborating. And we're seeing so much collaboration, so much interesting data coming out, so many new papers coming out, and uh, so much contributed by, you know, like yourself, that um, this is really a worldwide fight. It's almost like, you know, the entire Apollo program, the moonshot, except all of us are everywhere at, yeah. at the same time. But so much appreciated from our end. So what thoughts have you put into, like, what do you think it will take for us to sort of relax 
try to open up some parts of the economy again? Like you must have had your own speculations on this. So I think there's a lot of different models that are predicting our peak to be anywhere from mid-April to early May. I think that after that, we will see a decrease in the number of new cases per day, maybe by about June. And I think that um, at some point in June or July, they will relax social distancing measures. Now, I don't think they're going to just go back to opening everything. I think it's going to be gradual. Um, they might, you know, allow smaller gatherings to start. They might open restaurants, but with kind of distant uh, spaced seating. Um, I don't think there's going to be any major big events for a while. But in terms of a timeline, I think it, I think it is doable within the three to six months, pr uh, providing that we are able to enforce, not enforce, but I guess recommend the universal masking um, and have that kind of accessible testing. So probably, you know, some businesses will open, but, you know, large, large scale events, obviously, no. Um, that's, yeah. that's optimistic. Like, um, so far we're at about, I think what, I can't remember the exact number, 200 ICU ventilated patients in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And I forget what the peak projection was. I think it's up in somewhere in it's that. Significantly region. higher Something than, like that, than, that, yeah. than where we are. Well, there's 2000 beds, right? Yeah. So. so Jennifer, are we flattening the curve? I think it's too soon to say right now. Every day I look at the numbers and I'm always cautiously optimistic, but I, I'm glad that, like, even though we are increased day by day, I don't think it looks exponential in terms of the depths. Well, couldn't that just be we're not testing enough, I guess? <laughs> I guess that's why it is true. That's why we have to rely more on, like, the data about hospitalizations and ICU ventilators, because that's less uh, confounded by the lack of testing. Do you see any, um, like, sort of long-term care has become a big source of infections? Like, do you see um, that might contribute to sort of an exponential rise in cases, but maybe not ICU admissions, I guess. Yeah, that is really worrisome. I mean, I think the statistics are that half the deaths in Canada can be attributed to long-term care uh, facilities uh, right now. So I think today in Ontario, they have expanded testing to everybody entering a long-term care or everyone being admitted. I think that will definitely help a lot in terms of controlling outbreaks because uh, these seniors are in a very, very vulnerable population. Oh, definitely. And then you have, um, yeah. you know, a workforce that uh, often works multiple centers as well. Yeah, uh, it is it's very difficult. And I'm sure you've heard about the discussion about whether people should be removing their seniors from the um, long-term care home or not. And that is a really difficult decision too. It was a pretty bold statement that uh, Samir Sinha did. Uh, uh, individuals should uh, take their family members out of nursing homes and long-term care facilities immediately if they wanted them to survive over having them stay inside there. It's, he says that? You know, when you have somebody of his stature that's sort of making such a bold stance towards that, I mean, that's really telling towards the nature of how bad that epidemic is locally inside long-term care facilities. I think half of the patients that Bob Cajun passed away yeah, that's, it's really tragic what happened. And Kasha, we said that sort of when we first started out that uh, you know, this is going to be a plague that's going to come across and take all of our loved ones who are parents and grandparents. And uh, you know, you're, uh, you were sort of hit the nail on the head with respect to at least uh, translating that to what's happening in long-term care facilities. That's our generational and collective memory that's under threat. So that's, 
that's the thing. I hope we can save as much as we can the way things are going. You know, with more data and more uh, insights, that's how we're going to do it, hopefully. I think uh, having the data and the transparency also um, helps people understand why we are having these social distancing measures, right? Like if people can see how, um, you know, how the numbers are rising, then they may take things more seriously, um, continue to stay at home, um, waiting for the curve to find. Have you had any pushback or any resistance to getting information for your uh, update? Like any, you know, uh, bad feedback from government sources, anything like that telling you not to release this? You know what? I have not. Um, I am very um, careful and aware. Um, I mean, for example, like with the critical care data, I would say like people who have provided that to me do not wish to be named as the source. But when I asked them, you know, is there any restrictions on you releasing this information? Has anyone told you that it's not public? You can't share it. Nobody has said that. Everyone has said that. Nobody has told them specifically not to share. Um, so that's why I'm still sharing it. But if that changes, I, I might not do it, right? But um, I think so far the consensus amongst uh, physicians is that we want to get the data out there so that the public can understand the severity of the situation and do their part in staying home so that the, you know, the burden on our healthcare system is less. Jennifer, are you familiar with the, uh, the Medium article from about three uh, weeks ago by uh, Thomas Cuello, the one that's called The Hammer in the Dance? Yes, yes, I really liked it. Yeah, um, so I, I wanted to ask you a bit about, um, we talked about the hammer, a little bit more about the dance and what that's gonna look like for, uh, for Canadians going forward. The uh, little waves of infections that are gonna take place and what, uh, what, uh, what's Canada going to look like as a society during that period of time where they say that could last for you know, months to a year to beyond a year. And Justin Trudeau in his uh, speech from today was talking about uh, 12 to 18 months of such a dance taking place. Um, I think that we are all very cognizant that there may be recurrent peaks of infection. As soon as you lift social uh, distancing restrictions, then you might have uh, more recurrent infections. Um, I know back in 1918, they were saying how the second peak was so much worse than the first and lots more people died. I think that with our technology and advances these days, I don't think it's going to be worse than the first peak. I think everyone's going to learn very well what to do if there is another peak. Like People are going to go straight back to um, isolation, um, being extra cautious with social distancing. So I don't think it's going to be as bad um, the second wave. I think it's possible that we will get another peak of cases in the fall. Um, and I hope that by the fall, we will have adequate tests like uh, like we talked about in terms of the widespread easy fast testing to control these small outbreaks. Now I think that there may be partial, um, not lockdowns, but partial restrictions again in certain regions where there may be outbreaks, but I think that as a whole that we will not have to enter like a full country lockdown. Um, how, um, how have you dealt with, like, how has it affected your practice? Uh, like, has it, have you had to close your family practice or are you doing telemedicine? Um, we are doing mostly telemedicine. I would say I can manage maybe 95% of cases over the phone. Uh, what we are seeing in person is, uh, infant, uh, immunizations, which is still very important. Um, and, uh, some prenatal visits and some things you can't 
um, assess over the phone, but you don't want to send them to your emergency room. Um, so, you know, if someone has like severe abdominal pain, but I'm not really sure I can go straight to a diagnostic approach and I will see them in clinic. Anyone we see in clinic, we request them to wear their own mask or a scarf just to protect themselves, even if they're asymptomatic. So that includes uh, parents of the babies. Um, and then when they come in, our door is locked. They have to call in so nobody can just walk in. Um, our waiting room is mostly empty most of the time. All the chairs are spread apart. There's extra chairs in front of the reception area to prevent people from standing too close. And we also have a plastic barrier as well. Um, in pre-pandemic times, the staff would also walk the patient down the hall to the room. Now we just direct them to walk themselves into the room to kind of reduce exposure uh, to staff. When I do bring in patients, I actually do most of uh, the history taking over the phone as well. So when they're coming in, the exposure time is also limited. Well, that's very wise. I think um, I've seen um, some places will uh, put like sort of hang screens in front of their desks to sort of yeah. keep that barrier as well to staff. But um, I liked how you said uh, pre-pandemic times. I think that's probably <laughs> going to be something that's going to be a popular thing that's going to be said in the future, not just in healthcare. What's your opinion on data transparency in Canada? Do you think that um, um, we are doing as well as we should be doing in terms of transmitting data across the public? I mean, you step forward and fill that niche that clearly, in my mind, identified that there was a significant gap. What's your take on that? Um, I feel like the government has been improving in terms of uh, publishing more data. So within the past week on the Ontario website, there has been data for hospitalizations, um, ICU admissions and ventilators, whereas before that was only available on the critical care uh, reports. Um, and even today, the Public Health Agency of Canada released their uh, projections. So that's really helpful. Um, and Ontario also had that whole uh, prediction and modeling released a few days ago. Um, I think that um, maybe initially they weren't publishing it either because maybe they were overwhelmed, there was a lot of work to be done, or perhaps they were trying to avoid a public panic. Because when people do see that curve going up, it does um, cause a little bit of uh, anxious uh, distress. But I, I think in terms of data transparency, um, the government has definitely improved and stepped up in uh, offering more information. There's widely available um, data sets even so that people can use the raw data to make their own uh, analyses. For. I, I don't think it was the, uh, uh, the specific data themselves. I think it was more the fact that the source of the data is relying on people such as yourself to sort of present that in a way that's digestible to people in healthcare and to the general public. One would have thought that perhaps this would have been something the government of, uh, you know, Ontario or of Canada would have stepped forward in terms of presenting themselves uh, if, uh, if, you know, if transparency to data, of data to the public was something that was paramount. For sure. And I, I think I'm just going to assume that maybe they were too busy to do it. Um, I mean, there is definitely a lot of things, a lot of modeling and predictions that they could do. So I think, um, you know, when we identify that there is a gap, so when I noticed that I couldn't access the information I wanted. That's why I wanted to fill that um, gap. And I think sometimes when I'm posting uh, graphs on Twitter, people start messaging me. They're like, oh, can you add uh, this? Can you put this on your chart? Can you graph this? <laughs> you know what? Like, it is a lot of work. So, you know, it is very great if the uh, government continues to put out this data because the public can also use that to create 
crafts and the method that they want to uh, see it as well. Excellent. And I think, um, you know, in academic circles, your work is certainly being noticed. I mean, you take a look at the people that have been retweeting your data graphs, and it's been the large academics, epidemiologists, public health experts, and they're really relying on uh, the compilations that you're doing. So tremendous congratulations to you for that. Thank you. And thank you again for uh, joining us to talk about all this. Um, and yeah, keep doing a great work. And yeah, we're big fans. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me on your podcast. And thanks for bringing light to the COVID issues. Excellent.